Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello and welcome to another episode of National Security Magazine. I'm David Rothkopf. I'm your host. And we are lucky to be joined today by Ambassador Michael McFall, who is a professor at Stanford University and the head of the Freeman Spogli Institute there, also former U.S. uh, ambassador to Russia and a former senior director on the NSC. And while most of the news... Uh, today that's dominating the news this week might be in North Korea, might be in India, Pakistan, might be in a, a committee hearings that are, are are talking to Michael Cohen. Uh, I, I thought I'd go and do something a little bit unusual, and, and that's get a little perspective. Uh, and actually, one of the reasons I thought I would do it is it seems to me there are some puzzle pieces here that connect in ways we don't often talk about. This week in Ukraine... Uh, They are marking the fifth anniversary of the first incursions of Russians into eastern Ukraine. Uh, And, of course, that set in motion um, uh, a rising crisis, a response from the U.S., sanctions, uh, pressure on Putin, and uh, that pressure, those sanctions, seem to be directly tied to the objectives the Russians had in supporting Donald Trump uh, and supporting the outcome in this election, uh, in the 2016 election. Uh, And, you know, no one knows how these various worlds interconnect quite as well as you. But I was wondering, Looking at it in that historical context, you know, it would have been hard to imagine, and you were in the middle of it back then, that all that would lead to here. But but they're directly connected, aren't they? I think they are, David. Uh, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Second of all, thanks for talking about some history. That's always important uh, to think about how we got where we did. Uh, there's no question in my mind that um, the Russian intervention, violation of our sovereignty, media campaigns that they did in 2016 was directly connected to that moment that you just described, because Putin did go into Ukraine five years ago, first annexing Crimea, and then that when that proved to be pretty cost-free, then going into eastern Ukraine. Uh, the Obama administration, together with our European allies, and Angela Merkel in particular, I think, should get credit. Uh, responded with sanctions. They, they did other things, but sanctions was one of the main responses. And ever since, uh, Vladimir Putin's been trying to seek uh, relief from those sanctions. And when the campaign started in 2016, he even sent an envoy, uh, Natalia Veselnitskaya, uh, who very famously met with in the Trump Tower with uh, Donald Trump Jr. and Paul Manafort and Jared Kushner. And allegedly, that was a discussion about adoptions, but 
um, uh, anytime you talk about adoptions with Russian government officials, what you're talking about is really the Magnitsky Act because they um, uh, suspended adoptions for U.S. Uh, parents in response to the Magnitsky Act, which was the first wave of sanctions, uh, laws about sanctions. And that was very directly a tit for tat. We want to help you as long as you help us in getting rid of these sanctions. Um, and how do you think this is all going for Vladimir Putin? I mean, you know, he started this even before that. You know, yes. he, 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 he's been adventurous for a while and clearly he ventured into Georgia um, when George W. Bush was president of the United States. But if you just take this this big gamble because the annexation of Crimea, which ultimately was part of it, was about as bold a step as has happened during Putin's tenure. Um, yeah. uh, it, 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 you know, you, you, I, you could say, well, um, he's gotten what he wanted and now he's got Trump in place and sanctions are being lifted and things are working out and this is good for him. And he's also sort of triggered, uh, paid for a rise of the, ethno-nationalist right across Europe, and so it's all right. working out pretty well. On the other hand, the sanctions must really be bugging him, right? You know, yep. the, the, you look at the effort he's gone to and, 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 and the pressure that they must be putting on him and how fiercely they fight against Magnitsky Act adoptions elsewhere and continue to go after people like uh, Bill Browder and so on. And I'm just wondering, how do you how do you how do you think the Kremlin thinks this is all working, you know, in their, you know, secret late night conversations over a samovar or whatever they're having a late night conversation over? Well, I think both of those impulses you describe, kind of good stuff and bad stuff, are both true, right? And we should be able to manage that when we uh, analyze how it looks for Putin. So on the one hand, uh, you know, I think they were surprised like many others were. I most certainly was surprised on election night in 2016 when President Trump won. Uh, they were elated by that. Uh, and, uh, you know, Putin continues to say he did nothing, but I think they're pretty proud of what they did in 2016, by the way. And we should mention one other piece to that. We started with 2014 and the sanctions that they wanted to get lifted, but we should also go back to 2011 when there were demonstrations against Putin and his regime for a falsified parliamentary vote that he blamed uh, Secretary Clinton for helping to, to spark. Uh, by the way, he blamed me too when I arrived as ambassador in 2012. So it was both not to have Clinton uh, and to have Trump. Uh, both of those things were part of their strategy in 2016. And, you know, to fast forward to kind of the balance sheet today, I would say on the one hand, they are disappointed in how little that President Trump has uh, been able to deliver on some of the things that he talked about as a candidate. Uh, he hasn't lifted the sanctions, right? Um, and to that uh, explanation, by the way, Putin goes out of his way to say, well, that's because of the American deep state. Uh, that's because, yeah, and he even, you know, very carefully never criticizes President Trump, even in his uh, most latest uh, address to parliament, which he gives. It's kind of a state of the union address he gives every year. 
He just did that a, a few days ago and very carefully blames the foreign policy elite. David, I think he has you in mind. Uh, people like you uh, who are running Look, the country. Right. Uh, he's, tar he's, the targeting, he's targeting you and now you want to spread the drug. Well, we'll take it. That's why <laughs> Deep State Radio is here. We will take that. Yeah, that was why it was on my mind. Um, by the way, though, I, all joking aside, I've, I've been in meetings with Putin, you know, when I was in the government. And he definitely has this theory about American foreign policy. Uh, he had it about President Trump, uh, President Bush. Uh, Bush was always a, a good guy. It was always the deep state around him that did all the chaos uh, in those years. And when he met with Obama, he kind of intimated he had that idea, and he still does. But they're frustrated with. It, I want to be clear. Like they thought Trump was going to be more effective in doing lifting the sanctions, recognizing Crimea you know, re-engaging with the Kremlin, none of that has happened. On the positive side, however, and I think it really does outweigh those negative foreign policy achievements that they had hoped for, uh, President Trump has uh, polarized American society. Uh, they love to see that. President Trump has uh, caused lots of divisions in the transatlantic uh, relationship. Uh, I was just at the Munich Security Conference a couple of weeks ago, and, and all we did at that conference was talk about our internal problems, very little discussion of Russia or China uh, as a threat to the transatlantic liberal international order. Well, that's exactly what Putin uh, and his people won. And by the way, a lot of them were at that conference and they were, they themselves were commenting how wonderful it is to just watch us argue amongst ourselves and not be focused on them as a, as a threat. Um, well, uh, so it's a, it's, it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag for them is, is, yes. is what you're saying. Um, but, uh, I, mean, I guess I got a little sidetracked when you accused us of being in the middle of it, but I do have to say, um, the, you know, when the fancy bear incursion against the DNC took place, one of the parts of the story that doesn't get talked about much is there were also incursions against parts of that foreign policy elite, right? including the Council on Foreign Relations. And also I was at foreign policy at the time, including foreign policy. Nobody, fortunately, right. and nobody at foreign policy actually went for the, the fishing Bait that was given there, um, they but were they, targeted, yeah. they were targeted. It was clearly right. part of the plan. Uh, now, I, I also have to note that it's we're not just at the five-year anniversary of the Russians going into Ukraine, but we're at the five-year anniversary of your leaving office as ambassador to Russia, yes. uh, which happened at exactly the same week. So, um, how do you explain that? <laughs> I'm just. <laughs> Correlation is not causation, <laughs> uh, as we teach here at Stanford. Um, it, I think it was a coincidence, um, uh, a strange coincidence. And by the way, we even discussed me going back because of, uh, you know, that, that events literally were happening the day I landed back here home. Uh, ultimately, I decided not to, and I think in retrospect, rightly, because there was nothing to be done. Like, uh, it's, uh, and we've been stuck for a long time ever since. And um, there was no negotiation that having somebody on the ground immediately could have done to reverse that. Um, but, you know, I look at that as a very tragic moment uh, in U.S.-Russian relations. Obviously, Russian-Ukrainian relations, moreover, over 10,000 people have been killed in that war. Uh, but it's also the last time I've been in Russia, because after I came back, uh, we, the 
Obama administration uh, put lots of people on our sanctions list. Uh, and in return, the Russians put some Americans on the sanctions list, and I'm one of them. So I haven't been back to Russia ever since. Well, that may, in fact, be a a, a bit of a, a blessing. You know, the Russians take a lot of these things very personally. They do. And, and in the course of the past several years, there have been a, a number of Russian diplomats who've met untimely ends, Russian opposition leaders who've met untimely ends. And there's been a lot of speculation about how you know the Russians and and uh, uh, their sort of cohort that are involved in this thing um, might come after Paul Manafort, might come after Michael Cohn, might come after other people in this case. Um, and I'm just wondering, as somebody who's very familiar with the way they operate, how realistically do you rate the risks to people who are involved in the Trump-Russia case um, here in the U.S.? Yeah, that's an interesting question, and I'd, uh, I'm just going to speculate, right? Um, I mean, one, just to underscore something you alluded to, and I think it's important for your listeners to remember, uh, there are many things that, that Putin does today that are even extraordinary by uh, analogy with what happened during the Cold War, right? So some of the things in the Cold War we're not doing again. We don't have a big arms race. We don't have proxy wars around the world. There's not an ideological battle between communism and capitalism. And yet in this period, uh, there are things that we thought we weren't doing. So annexation, we thought that was over with World War II. It's back. Uh, these sanctions that we were discussing earlier, we didn't have this level of sanctions between our two countries during the Cold War. And assassinations and assassination attempts uh, inside Russia and on uh, you know, British soil with uh, the attempt against Mr. Skrupal, uh, somebody who I, by the way, was part of the team that negotiated to get out of Russia back in 2010 when we did a spy swap. That's also extraordinary. And what it says to me, I, and then don't forget 2016 and, and that extraordinary thing they did in violating our sovereignty during our presidential race. These, these show you that Putin, I think, does not feel constrained uh, and is, is willing to take more risky behavior. Um, and which is not, I don't want to speculate to say he would go after some of those people on the list that you just described. But every time we come up to one of these things, right before it, people would argue, I remember very vividly about Crimea, well, surely he would never annex territory, and yet he did. Uh, surely he would never intervene in Syria as, uh, to prop up Assad, and then he did. Surely he would never, uh, you know, steal uh, emails and then um, published them as a way to hurt uh, Secretary Clinton and help Trump, and then he did. And surely he would never assassinate somebody in the United Kingdom, or at least try, and, and yet he did. So I just think we're in a, a period of time with, with Vladimir Putin where his behavior is way more risky today, most certainly than it was 20 years ago, and even by Soviet standards, I would say, is pretty unconstrained. And that's just because he doesn't care about the West anymore. You know, 20 years ago, he wanted to be a part of those clubs. You know, he wanted to be in the G8. He wanted to be, you know, a member of the, the liberal international order. Uh, today, he wants its destruction. Well, um, 
he seems to be pursuing that to, to, to some degree. But, you know, I think one of the things, you know, we get so numbed with Trump, Russia, Trump scandals elsewhere, 17 investigations into Trump and so forth. But I was struck um, because just a few minutes before we began this interview, which is taking place on the Wednesday afternoon of the week, there was a, a questioning of Michael Cohen and one of the things we were talking about was a $150,000 payment for a video interview that went from uh, Victor Pinchuk, a uh, Ukrainian billionaire oligarch, to Trump, which you know Trump requested be put in his family foundation, um, which looks a bit like a tax dodge. Uh, and also in the testimony, you heard about Trump uh, selling uh, a big Florida estate at one point uh, to another figure in this world. And, uh, you know, in the Manafort case, of course, one of the most astonishing developments recently, as far as I'm concerned, is Manafort was hired by Oleg Deripaska to help get sanctions list lifted. Manafort was revealed to be a career criminal, put in jail, maybe in jail for the rest of his life. But somehow Oleg Deripaska got the sanctions lifted anyway. And, yes, you know, it's sort of everywhere you look, there is a Russian tentacle into this administration. And then, of course, there's Trump Tower. And then, of course, there's the Flynn meetings um, uh, and and uh, so forth. And I, I just, you know, as somebody who studied Russia your whole life, did you ever envision a moment where you would have a U.S. president who is so woven into the fabric of the Russian oligarchy or vice versa? No, no, it's extraordinary. It's unprecedented. Uh, the, the, there are so many tentacles, that's a great word, that, that are all around. Um, and, you know, at the, the other thing to put next to that is that when we talk about policy, I've also never seen, maybe you have, uh, David, so jump in if you can remember a case, but a case where um, the administration itself kind of adheres to one policy, which I, I think is a lot of continuity with the Obama administration, by the way, in terms of confronting Russia, but the president himself disagrees with that policy uh, and and makes it known that he disagrees. Yeah, you know, he says it on the record. I don't like these sanctions. I'm signing this law, but I don't like it. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, criticizes almost everybody <laughs> domestically and internationally, uh, and yet has never said a an unkind word about Vladimir Putin. So it is uh, a very strange time, and and that paradox, I think, demands an explanation that I that I I personally don't understand. Yeah, I I agree with you, and I think one of the mistakes that a lot of people who are observers here make is they say, well, unless Robert Mueller can prove conspiracy, which people call collusion, then there's nothing to see here, and of course. That's just not true that, you know, on purely a policy basis, there are a lot of bad policies that have been promulgated yes. because of this closeness, because of the president's predilections, because of the divisions in the in the government. But I would say I don't, I don't know if I just draw the line between the president and others and the and, and the rest of the administration, because. Yeah, that's too generous. Yes. Right. The, tre there. Yeah, the, yeah. the Treasury Department yes. has has taken a kind of soft line and we have this. I, a, a kind of disturbing case, which is 
just it, it's got such a hard time making its way into the news because so much is pushing it out, where the United States has stepped out of the INF Treaty, yes. an important functioning treaty that gave us some leverage over the Russians, and said that they were doing it because we were upset with the Russians for violating it. But of course, by stepping out of it, we not only lost all the leverage we had, but we gave them essentially a free pass to do whatever they wanted and triggered something you just referred to before, potentially, which is we could get into a bit of an arms race again, which we right. hadn't been in for a while. So there are a lot of pockets. And, and by the way, and you may want to pick up on this one, uh, you know, Sergei Lavrov's in Hanoi at the at the yes. at the summit meeting, you know, sort of making sure that you know these two um, uh, Kremlin-friendly leaders uh, uh, don't do anything that the Kremlin doesn't feel comfortable with. <laughs> it's rather extraordinary, but you make a good point both about the INF treaty. Uh, and about the lifting of sanctions on Deripaska. So uh, it's it's not right to say it's just the president and nobody else's support. There are these weird things. I mean, I think pulling out of the INF Treaty was uh, not in America's national interest and, and puts all the onus and focus on us as pulling out and not focusing on Russia. Uh, and I just, you know, is there ever a time where we're better off having more nuclear weapons than less? I think the answer to that is pretty clear, no. Um, but then second, I'm glad you brought up the Treasury thing in Deripaska, um, because that was very strange, right? I mean, the theory of sanctions is that you sanction individuals or companies or countries to get them to change some foreign policy behavior. Um, and what happened here, uh, they, they sanctioned Mr. Deripaska and his companies, uh, along with some others. Um, uh, uh, no foreign policy changed. Putin didn't change his ways. And then, you know, several months later, they lifted those sanctions. And the the argument was, well, they restructured the companies so that he doesn't own 50 percent uh, of those companies. Why do we as Americans care how much of those companies that Deripaska uh, owns or not? Uh, he certainly controls all those companies. He's probably made quite a bit of money uh, since then because owning uh, a lesser share of something more valuable uh, in in the net is better off for him, and it was very strange. The the you know the Treasury's uh, explanation uh, was not convincing as to why they did that. So I, I, I it seems again there's some weird tentacles, and he spent you know half a million dollars allegedly to to lobby certain folks, but uh, it definitely didn't feel like it was something done in the name of American national interest. Um, what do you think about Lavrov in Hanoi? What do you think his objectives are there? What do you think the Russians would like to see out of out of that uh, uh, summit? Well, they, it's kind of confusing for them because they don't like being on the sidelines, uh, right? When I was in the government, they loved the format where everybody was at the table and nothing got done. Um, uh, but they also don't want Trump to fail uh, because they they still believe that in the long run uh, he's going to be able to deliver. Uh, and they have a they have a theory that, you know, someday the Mueller investigation will be done. Maybe Trump then wins reelection. And that's when you get the big breakthroughs uh, that he has promised uh, before. And so they don't want him to fall on his face uh, w with respect to this summit. 
Uh, yeah, but the reality is he may not. You know, I mean, we right. may get a we don't get an inconclusive Mueller thing, and the Republicans may, you know, the Republican Senate can stop almost anything from happening. Right. And Trump can be in office for another couple of years. Uh, I mean, he could win too. You know, he could be in office for another six years, um, and that could work to their advantage. What else do you think they might have on their to-do list? Well, with respect to Trump personally, and you know, I just saw a bunch of Russians uh, in Munich last week. I mean, they still hold out the the possibility that he'll be more liberated. Uh, to do the things he said he would do, like recognize Crimea, lift sanctions, uh, pull out of Syria, um, uh, you know, all those things they hope. Oh, and by the way, you know, to kind of give up on Ukraine more generally, like, um, and that he said enough things to give them reason to believe that with time, Americans will forget about Ukraine. Uh, and by the way, I think there's evidence to support that hypothesis. We we don't talk about the, the, you know what's happening there that much. And number two, they have you know they've studied history and they know that second term presidents do do more on foreign policy. They're more free to do things, and so they hope that he'll get to that point, uh, and that will be the moment for big breakthrough. I, and then there's the third thing that you alluded to earlier, and I, I wanted to come back to it because I think it's important for people to remember that for Putin, this is not just about you know, winning out on this foreign policy issue or that foreign policy issue. He believes that he is waging an ideological struggle against the decadent liberal West. Uh, he's been engaged in this for a, a long time, by the way. They've been courting people in Europe, in the United States, evangelicals, the NRA. You know, when I was ambassador, I would see some of these delegations coming through and, and they would have some very odd meetings, you know, with the Russian Orthodox Church, for instance. And it was part of, I think, a, uh, you know, a, a strategy, a long-term strategy to court favor with like-minded uh, ideologues. I mean, I think that's the right word. Um, and, you know, in the early days, they didn't have much success. But lately, uh, things seem like they're moving in their favor, whether you look at Viktor Urban in Hungary or Salvini in Italy and even Donald Trump in the United States. So that strategy is continuing and they want to nurture their like-minded thinkers, including here in the United States. And so when you see that uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, his approval rating in the Republican Party has has gone up considerably in the last two years, they see that as evidence of the success of this long-term strategy that they're playing out. Yeah, well, you know, one of my, you know, major sort of uh, uh, issues with the way a lot of this gets covered is that we in the United States, because we're kind of a narcissistic country, uh, tend to cover it all in terms of the United States. Yes. And that there is a much broader strategy. You mentioned, of course, Salvini and Viktor Orban, but uh, you have Le Pen in France and, and you have Brexit in the Brexit. UK, yeah. uh, which uh, may, may be their biggest success of all. We'll see how that plays out. But, you know, what they've done is they've systematically gone after the Atlantic Alliance. Having yep. said that, just picking up on your other point, uh, it's 
you know, of, of all the extraordinary, unpredictable things that you couldn't have predicted when you were um, studying this stuff as, as, as a young person or even when you were doing it as ambassador, we have come to the point where the Republican Party is the party of Russia, don't like socialism much, like Russia. We've sort of come right. to a kind of interesting party and <laughs> fork in the road on that. Yes. But they're, they're, they're the party of Russia. Um, evangelicals support Russia. Um, and and as you mentioned, the NRA seems to have close ties to Russia, although I, I believe in Russia, you're not actually allowed to own a gun, right? So you're not. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's all it's all quite bizarre. Is it is it just sort of self-interest and Russian money being available that has led to this turn, or is there something else going on? I think there's. I think it's it's both, and and you know we could probably plot it out uh, on with multiple different vectors, right? So some of it I think is just money. Uh, and, you know, we alluded to it earlier in the conversation, you know, the way Putin rules Russia is usually by money and then creating leverage by giving people money and property rights. That's how he rules Russia. Um, you know, Take Igor Sechin, the head of Rosneft, uh, somebody I've known as long as I've known Putin. I, I met both those guys in 1991. Igor uh, now runs the largest oil company in Russia, but his property rights and his position is totally dependent on Putin, not the courts, not the rule of law. Uh, and they he does this all the time with people, you know, allowing them to to, to do certain corrupt deals that then creates leverage, some would say blackmail uh, for Putin. And they do this in other countries in Europe, and maybe they did it here in the United States. We have to wait and see. So th there's that There's that dimension. I also, however, think there is a more ideological dimension. Um, for guys like Steve Bannon, for instance, you know, he seems to be, and I don't know him personally, but I know some of the Russians that he admires. I've, I've known them personally. And they themselves, guys like Alexander Dugin, for instance, he's one of these thinkers on this, on this side of the ledger in Russia. You know, they do have this philosophy about the world. They, they do think that multilateral institutions have been bad for uh, the nation. Uh, they're champions of sovereignty. Um, in Russia, sometimes it's more ethnic and sometimes less, but the, uh, they want to kind of unite all the white people against all the, the people challenging uh, European traditional culture. Uh, and so I do think within alt-right circles in America, and this this group of thinkers that orbit around Putin, right? I, they're not in the government. You see more kind of ideological affinity as well, including some of those other people that you rightly listed in terms of Le Pen and the Brexit folks and in other parts of Europe. That's not just motivated by self-interest, but has a, a kind of uh, ideological dimension. Yeah, they're not. I mean, Putin is not exactly playing three-dimensional chess here, but. But he is enough more strategic than Trump and Nigel Farage and Salvini and Orban and so forth that he can appear to be the mastermind because he actually has a, a worldview. Yes, I think where, that's a good point. 
right? And and so that has put us in this position where these others are more easily manipulated by him. And of course, each one of these countries um, has a kleptocracy or an oligarchy that you know is operating under the same rules as the one in Russia is essentially, which is what's in it for me. And you know they're very transactional. Um, I don't, you know, it's interesting. We haven't gotten to the Wilbur Ross collaboration with Russian bankers in Cyprus, yeah. right? We had, there, there, there are whole elements of this thing we haven't explored yet, but but Wilbur Ross and the, the, the Trumps and a bunch of these other people have felt very good dealing with these Russians because it's an easy way to make a buck, right? Well, most certainly there's more to that story than we know, and I hope Mr. Mueller or others will help us understand it. I think it's a great point, though, that you're making that that these oligarchic groups in Russia have found partners in the West, uh, in places like Greece, but also in the United States, in Ukraine, in uh, other parts of Europe. And uh, when you have a lot of money that you can use for political purposes, uh, it creates leverage. And I think that's that's important. There, you know, these Russian companies and these Russian business people, some of them are traditional corporate people. I, you know, I know all these guys. You know, I, I just saw Oleg Deripaska at the Munich Security Conference. In fact, strangely, he was hovering about that meeting. Um, uh, but others are instruments of Russian power. And, and everybody understands that that's the role that they play. Um, and, you know, it's effective. And the, the other one, I would, the other piece that we should add is, of course, our openness as liberal democratic societies also creates opportunities for, you know, media platforms sponsored by Putin that, that play by different rules. So Russia Today and Sputnik and the Internet Research Agency that, that you know, floods the zone with bots, uh, they can do all that because it's an open society, but they're doing it instrumentally to serve Putin's interests. And that's you know they are not journalists. Uh, they they have an assignment in that in, uh, that you know there's they're seeking to advance Putinism, um, and you know I people kind of laugh about them. They say RT is not serious, and you know they're marginal actors. I I have a very different reaction. I I see that operation as getting more and more sophisticated, uh, with lots of resources behind it. So. We're coming to the end of our time here, and, and we could go on and on, and I hope perhaps you'll be back and we can sure, go on and on. Of but, um, uh, you know, one of the other stories of the past uh, um, uh, couple of weeks that has not made it to the top of the pile is um, that the U.S. shut down one of the Russian troll farms on Election Day in 2016. Um which is heartening in the sense that somebody in the U.S. is doing this since the president's gutting the funding for combating this in places like uh, DHS. But but on the other hand, it suggests that the Russians, you know, that this 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 attack of 2016 was not a one-off. This is part of how they're going to deal with our openness until we find a way to shutting it off, and that this is really going to be a big issue in 2020. Uh, particularly since it doesn't seem like this administration really wants to do anything about it. Yes. I mean, I, so I'd say two things. One, uh, all of the permissive conditions of 2016, 
that allowed the Russians to do what they did are still available to them for 2020. Uh, we've done next to nothing to regulate what they can do, what their government, you know, RT can do on our social media platforms, for instance. We haven't we haven't wrestled with that very hard public policy issue. We've done next to nothing to uh, uh, increase cybersecurity for the infrastructure that counts our votes. Um, there's still a dozen states that don't have paper trails, right? Um, uh, so, and and you just said it. There's an explanation for it because the president himself doesn't want to admit to the diagnosis that we all share because he thinks it undermines his legitimacy with respect to what happened in 2016. So we're divided in terms of the public policy debate. Um, now, having the capacity doesn't mean they'll use it, right? So I, I don't want to jump to the conclusion that they will, but I'm nervous about it. And I'm, I'm especially nervous about the capacity that they had in 2016 that they didn't use, which was to be disruptive on election day, to you know, to do some pretty minor things. Uh, you know, we have a we have a whole team that studies and works on this at Stanford on cybersecurity. Uh, they make it sound like it's pretty trivial in terms of a, um, you know, the 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 mechanics of it. Well, which would might put in question the outcome of a vote on election day. Uh, we dodged that bullet in 2016 because they chose not to play it. Uh, but, you know, uh, maybe they'll choose to do that in 2020. And that then that then co creates a real crisis uh, about the legitimacy of the election. Um, so I hope, you know, in the next 18 months, we'll take that that particular issue much more seriously. I hope so, too. I hope you'll come back. This was great. Sure. And, yep, that's uh, and uh, I suspect uh, none of these threads are fully developed yet. So we'll we'll reach out to you again soon. In the meantime, be well. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And uh, that's it for um, this issue of National Security Magazine. Please go to deepstateradionetwork.com if you'd like to listen to our other podcasts or read our other content or become a member, um, which is a great thing to do because it enables us to do more programming like this. Uh, and, uh, you know, really just do it. It's not that, uh, uh, expensive and it has a big benefit to, um, uh, our, our programming here, which I, I hope you find of some value. Thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.